So let's just do this and get it out of the way. Everybody just go, ooh, 15 times. <laughs> and that way I'm not worried about if you don't the rest of the time. The pressure's off. No, you know the truth is, is the pressure is really off of our lives. It has been since Jesus said it was finished. And, and I, I talked about this a little bit in the first service, but he's saying the same thing to you and I that he said to those disciples. He said, follow me, I'll make you. You don't have to make yourself. You don't have to make your own way. You don't have to politic, connive, work. It's not about being lazy. You notice Jesus was at rest constantly, but he was always doing. But he was doing because of who he was, not to try to become. There's that place where we understand that that we have the approval of the Father, so we live from that place of approval, rather than thinking that we're on trial trying to earn his approval. He showed you your value and your worth at the cross when he shed the blood of his son for your life. He thought his life given was worth your life lived. There was something in you that he saw that you didn't. And so if you just follow him, he'll make you. These, they didn't read their own gospels. They didn't know what he's talking about. You know, we hear things like, think, sometimes when we read the Bible, I think we would do really well to say, God, clear my mind so that I can hear your word fresh. You know, because we're reading through these things and, you know, we hear him say to the disciples, follow me and I'll, I'll make you fishers of men. And, and instantly we know, well, they're going to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. They don't know that. They just start to hear this young Jewish rabbi look at them and say, if you follow me, I'll make you. And what I'm going to make you is fishers of men. Like their, their grid for that would be people that run around with nets, throwing nets on people and catching them and dragging them somewhere. You know, we're like, oh yeah, that means to preach the gospel. They don't know, but they see something in this Jesus who's calling their name that they'll give their life for. They start to follow him. Um, I, I, I got ambushed this morning. I came here to, to speak and to, to meet with Jeff and Billy and Gabe and Dustin and Steve and the leaders last night and I, I was telling them this morning, I feel like I got ambushed by the love of God because um, it's, it's, we walked through some things and you start to question the validity of Christian brotherhood because sometimes it seems like there's always a hook but, there, but there's a love that comes along that says, eat as much as you want. You never have to worry about a hook. You can swallow this, and there's nothing that's going to catch you. It's love for the sake of love, not love unto something, because love unto something isn't love. It's just manipulation. It's I love you as long as you do what I want or what I need. You, I'm telling you that it, it restored that joy towards that. I can see it in my wife's face right now for both of us. It's like, oh, there is that perfect love that casts out fear because fear involves punishment. There's nothing connected to this love. There's no expectation. There's no need. It simply loves because it is love. And man, is that just restored so much in that. It's been just amazing. My heart feels so light and happy because you encounter something that you forgot was there because of the wrong that you've seen. And I wanna make sure that I'm always that person that people walk away convinced that it's real rather than people's, the problem in people's story. 
And so I'm thankful to be here. My wife Patty's here with me. Um, our kids are at home. We have a daughter, Aaliyah, who's 17, and a son, Jackson, who's, uh, who'll be 14 in October. We pastor a, a church, outreach church in Greenville. And um, yeah, this place feels like home. It feels like family here. It really does. Um, yeah. It does. The worship. Our worship leader was at IHOP in 2002. We have a lot of that same flavor. Worship feels like we're at home. Um, and, and I was just like, God, don't let me trample Mary Beth. Because <laughs> she's, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you start like, you get lost in what you're doing and you forget that like there's people next to you sometimes, you know. And um, Yeah, I, I'm going to just launch into this and, and uh We'll see where we go. Um, I was born into a Christian home. I was born into a Lutheran home, and I knew about God from a young age, um, but my idea of God was probably more like Santa Claus. He was this old guy in the sky that saw everything that everybody did, and he gave them what they deserved based on their actions. And that was my idea of God. Be careful. You teach your kids about Santa Claus. Legalism comes along and sounds a lot like him. And so I, I, my idea of God was pretty much he was the divine Santa. And, and the, the, the thought that he saw everything that I did and everywhere I went terrified me. And it's now the most comforting thing in the world. That he sees me wherever I am and he knows everything that I'm doing. And he knows everything that I'm dealing with. That is the most comforting thing. But back then, it was the most terrifying thing in the world. And so I, I, I had this idea that God was already upset with me and angry with me because I didn't, I didn't understand the, power, the transforming power of grace and the indwelling spirit. And, and so I, I knew what I shouldn't do, but I didn't know that there was a way I could actually live in a place where I was capable of living the life he called me to. I didn't understand that grace was more than him saying I forgive you when I sinned. It was actually supposed to be the transforming power of the gospel inside of me that changed me to live the life he called me to live. It has to be more than that because Jesus was a man full of truth and grace and if he never sinned, why did he need grace? If all it was was to cover over sin. He's the one who can According to Jude, he's the one who can keep you from stumbling. He doesn't just pick you up when you stumble. He actually can keep you from stumbling. So you're saying you never stumble? Why would you ask me that? I'm not the standard. Jesus is, and he never did, and he said, be like me. See, we got to be careful we don't get into these arguments that don't matter and start making points that don't need to be made and rather say, this is what Jesus said. This is what he called us to. He said, those who claim the name of, of Christ must walk in this world as he walked. You realize that like there's ifs and whens in the Bible. Be careful you don't put a when where he puts an if and an if where he puts a when. Because he said if you sin and when you fast. Let's be honest, if we're growing up in simple church life, we're probably told we're going to sin and not, maybe not even told that we're supposed to fast. So if we put an if in front of one of it, it would probably be fast, and if we put a when in front of one, it would probably be sin. And then we wonder why we sin so much. It might be because we fast so little. And maybe if we would fast a little more and actually empty ourselves and learn what it is to, to dominate our flesh and to say, I'm not gonna live by feelings. I'm gonna live not by bread. I'm gonna live by the words that proceed from the mouth of the Father. And so I'm gonna tell myself no to lesser things because I'm saying yes to greater things. If we would teach ourselves with that simply something like food, we might be amazed at how easy it is to say that when it comes to other things. Because there's a, there's a whole world out there that's set up to deceive you. You know this is true. 
All right, remember, he knows. How many of you have ever cried when you watched a movie? Put your hand up. No, no, put it up. Come on, bro. I don't believe you. There it goes. See? They, you did that last service. Last service, I asked that question. There's a few dudes. They're like, I'm going to put my hand up. But when you say, come on, they're like, mm. here's, the, here's the thing, though. You sat down and watched that movie, and you already knew that it wasn't real. And yet what you saw caused you to have an emotional response that manifested in the physical because your feelings and your emotions led you to that place. If you could be manipulated to that place by something you knew wasn't true, imagine how easily that could happen if what's being presented to you is being called truth. You better make sure that you're anchored in the word of God so that when truth presents itself, there's a filter that it runs through. Or you might find yourself being easily deceived and led astray because emotions are amazing servants but they're horrible masters. Your emotions are to serve you. You're not to serve them. I'm not talking about being robots. It's amazing to when you encounter God, the, the joy that's expressed, the tears that come falling, the, the, the times that you just laugh and are light or whatever the, the response is, there should be response. But the truth of the matter is, is he's just as real when you feel that as when you don't. And if you don't anchor yourself in that, you'll live for a feeling rather than live for a man, Jesus. Come on, I'm telling you. Don't let those things lead you astray. Let them lead you into Jesus. And if they're not leading you into Jesus, then they're probably not worth giving your attention to or following. There will be times in your life where what you see directly contradicts what he spoke, and you better be anchored into, those, into his word in those moments, or you'll find yourself getting tossed about like a ship on the sea. There was a time recently where my wife and I faced something like that. You know, I preached a message just like this. The second service, I, I usually... I try to preach the same, me- I, I try to preach, and then I get up and I just, blah, you know, <laughs> but I, I try to preach the same message both services, and it rarely works, but, it, but I think God's like, oh, bless your little heart, you know, you tried, <laughs> and, I, and I prepare a message every week, just like I prepared a message for here, but my notes are over there, and none of this stuff is on it, but listen, don't ever buy into the fact that lack of preparation is what the Holy Spirit is looking for. Say that. I'm telling you, listen, flaky is not a fruit of the Spirit. We should, we should be the most solid, stable, yes means yes, no means no people on the face of the earth because we have the God of the universe living and dwelling inside of us. And he's not a man that he should lie and he values his own word even above his name. And then he called us to be like him. Come on. Lack of preparation should never be passed off as being spirit-led. You prepare, and then fire falls. Listen, fire falls on sacrifice, yes, but every time there's a sacrifice, there had to be preparation. Fire falls on prepared sacrifice. The preparation is just as valuable. And so I prepare a word, and then fire falls, and the word gets consumed, and all that comes out is him. But I think he, he values the fact that I value that time spent with him, seeking him, and preparing my heart to speak. And it's the reason I can just flow when I get up here is because I'm not hoping he comes with a word. It's because he's already come with a word. And now if he's giving me something in the moment, I trust that as well. That's how we should live our lives. And so there was a time recently where my wife and I faced this. I remember the first time I ever faced it. 
The first time I ever faced it, I was, I was a drug addict. I started doing drugs. I'm not going to tell the whole story. It was on the, it's on the earlier service. But, but I started doing drugs at nine years old, got high for the first time. By the time I was 17 years old, I was completely addicted to a bunch of different drugs, and I was selling drugs and using drugs. I looked way different than I look now. I had, I had dreadlocks down to here, and I bottom six teeth were gold. I weighed like 120 pounds soaking wet. I thought it was hard. And I was just a mess. I was ridiculous. I looked ridiculous. We all do when we're living apart from the identity we were created for. Your life apart from Jesus looks completely ridiculous, even if you don't realize it in the moment. There's coming a day when you actually get born again and all things pass away and everything becomes new that you hate who you were because you see who you were meant to be. Uh, if, if that day hasn't come, I hate that guy. Like, I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> I am. Because he had to die so that, that, that the real me, the me created in the image and likeness of the Father could be resurrected to newness of life in Christ. I was buried into death with him in baptism. Surely then I will be raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. I'm not who I was. I remember the first time I got that. For, for, I got born again. Oh, it happened in a bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I, I was 17. My mom threw the drug lifestyle out of the house, and I went with it. And I, I, I lived this just stupid, crazy life of, of getting high and serving myself because every man seeks after his own until he finds the one who's worth seeking after, right? And the person on the throne of your life, if it's not Jesus, isn't the devil. It's you. Your life is self-serving. You see it in the garden, the very first thing that happens. Man lives at the expense of other people wasn't my fault, God. It was the woman that you gave me. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault or your fault, but it wasn't mine. Self-defense, self-preservation, the first thing we see. And every man was born into selfishness. That's why Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must first deny yourself. Then take up your cross and follow me. You're not, you haven't even picked up your cross, never mind following Jesus, if you haven't denied yourself. If life's about you, then it's not about him. So when he's on the throne, I'm not. And I, 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 was, I didn't realize this, and I was just living completely self-consumed and self-absorbed. And, and then I, I just hit this low point, and a, a good friend of mine who, who had lived with me at one point was like a son to my mother, was like a brother to me since second grade, uh, shot and killed somebody, and a drug deal gone bad. And I just looked around at my life, and I was like, what in the world? This, this, is, this sucks. And I just started just, I went on a bend, and I started just using anything I could. And I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I didn't really care if I did. And three days into it, I, I hit a line of cocaine so long that, that my heart pounded so hard in my chest that I threw up. And I thought I was overdosing and my skin looked like it was crawling around on me. And, and I was like, man, I don't want to die in this little house. You know, I, I, I got to go home to, to my mom and dad's house. I want to die there. I don't want to die here like this. And so three o'clock in the morning, I break in the back door. I go into the bathroom. I look into the mirror and it looks like Satan looking at me. And I don't know if it was the drugs or if the Lord opened my eyes to who I was giving my life to. And in that moment, this, this prayer came from inside of my heart. I don't know if I said it out loud or not, but what came out of my heart was, God, if you're real, either change me or let me die. I can't live like this. I instantly sobered up. Pupils went to normal. Skin stopped crawling. Heartbeat slowed down. Everything completely normal. And I freaked out. And I, I remember thinking, Oh, you're real. No, you, you, I, you're real. You're really real. Like you're real. You're 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 real. You you are real, and I'm just losing it. And the reality of God is crashing in on me in this bathroom. And what I didn't have theology for then that I have theology for today is that He answered both of my prayers. He said, "I'll do both of those. I'll let you die so that you can actually be changed." 
And I walked out of that bathroom a different person than I walked in. And guess who's standing there at 3.30 in the morning? It's my mom. Why? Because two nights ago, she was up praying, and she was up all night reading the word and praying and crying like moms do, and God spoke to her audibly the second time he ever spoke to her audibly in her life, and he said, Brenda, do you trust me with your son? And she said, Lord, you know I do. And he says, no, do you trust me with your son? And she's looking at the Bible. She's looking at the clock. She's looking at her tears, and she says, if I, of course I do. That's why I'm doing this. He said, then trust me with your son and go to sleep. Now listen, don't make, a, don't make a, a formula out of that. There's a time to stay up all night travailing, crying, reading the word and praying, but there's also a time when he says to sleep, to sleep, and you have to be able to listen to the voice of the father and be fathered by him rather than make him a formula to be figured out so that you know when he's telling you to sleep and when he's telling you to stay up and pray. You can see it with the children of Israel. First time they come to a body of water. He says, Moses, you stand in front of the people and you raise your staff and I'll part the water and you'll pass through. And those Egyptians you see behind you, you'll never see them again. The enemy that was chasing you, you're never gonna see it again. It's been swallowed up by the Lord. It's lost and drowned in his presence. The only thing that's chasing you now is goodness and mercy because they follow you all the days of your life. When you hear that behind you, when you hear it behind you, scatter, you know, don't worry, have no fear. The righteous are as bold as lions. The wicked flee when no one pursues them. Why is that? It's because the righteous understand if there's something behind me, it's just his goodness and mercy. It's gonna follow me all the days of my life. I might as well turn around and say hello and enjoy it. And so I, 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 got, I walk out of the, the bathroom at 3.30 in the morning, my mom's standing there and she's weeping. And she says, the Lord woke her up and said, your son's come home and he's in the bathroom. And so she's standing there and she just grabs me and hugs me and prays with me. And I went and slept like I'd never slept in my life. I slept the sleep of the righteous, the sleep of the redeemed, the sleep of the one who wasn't afraid of what would happen when I closed my eyes. I woke up and I was not the same person as I was. Not, not only did he set me free in a moment, he took the desire to ever be high again from me to the point where when I had surgery in my mouth and they prescribed me painkillers, I cut them into quarter-sized pieces, in, into four pieces, and took one of those with aspirin because my life in him is so good, I don't want to waste a moment of it being high because I've found the one that my heart was longing for that whole time. I've called off the search. He's it. He's everything. <laughs> Why would I want to counterfeit when I've found the real thing? Some of you guys need to settle in your heart that you've found the one that you've been searching for and quit searching anymore and start actually yielding and giving yourself to him. You're not waiting for the next thing, the next move of God, the next big thing to come along. You've found him. He's the pearl of great price and he thought you were too so he sold everything to have you. It cost him, every one of us, every single one of us cost him the same thing. That's why it's every mountain low, every valley high. Every one of us in this room cost him the same price. It was the blood of his son. And I'm, my mom talks to me, and so my life is, is radically changing, and I talk to my little brother. He lives in Greenville now because he moved up there for a job, and he said, you should come up here. It's a good place. Get away from all those people. And, and the truth of the matter is, is, you know, there's sometimes that it's okay to separate yourself. Sometimes you just need to be alone with him and need to get away from everything so that you can discover who you were always meant to be and discover him as a father and let him father you. 
Let him love you. Let him bring you to a place. Paul had to do it for three years. Jesus did it for 40 days. It's okay to separate yourself for a time and just be with him. But if that becomes the answer permanently, something's wrong because his desire is that in that time you would be so changed that when you face the world again, you're not the same person that faced it before and you actually can overcome. You're called to be an overcomer. That means there has to be things to overcome. The Holy Ghost isn't a janitor that cleans up all the mess in the world. He's the one who changes your heart so that you can be the answer to every mess you find yourself in. We find ourselves sometimes praying like, oh God, would you just take me out of here? Maybe God put you there because it's so bad. Because he believes that the spirit of God inside of you is greater than the spirit that's in that room. Quit praying for him to deliver you away from it and, and, and realize that maybe you are called to be the deliverance to that place. Because Christ in you is the hope of glory, but Christ revealed in you is glory revealed. The Bible says that. It says that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like waters the sea. His glory is already covering the earth, but the knowledge of it comes when we actually open up and allow the glory of God that is Christ in us to be revealed to the world and men see with their eyes what we know in our hearts. That's his desire for you. You're not a mess. He says, he says you were broken, but he mended you. You were torn. He came. You were, you were dead. He came to make you alive. You're not a fixed up version of you. You got born again, the old you died, the new you is a new creation in Christ. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. And the enemy would love to remind you of who you were so that he can keep you from becoming who you were meant to be. You struggle with regret, it's because you look at your past apart from the blood of Jesus. You struggle with anxiety, it's because you imagine your future apart from his promises and his presence. I promise you, any moment, anything, he, he said, be anxious over nothing. His word says that. That means there's a grace that we can walk in where we actually don't have anxiety because he's not a frustrating father that calls us to things that he doesn't grace and empower us to walk in. So I get born again and I'm, I'm radically changed and I'm just, I'm, I'm reading the word like the first time ever and I'm like, oh my, I can know you. I feel like my whole life has been a lie. I could, have known, I could have known you already for, this way for 19 years and I had regret and then he reminded me that he can restore even what the locust ate. And I never once regretted anything from that day forward of, of what I missed because I am persuaded that he is able. And so I, 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 I told my little brother, I said, yeah, I should move up there. And so I did this crazy thing called praying, which was me talking to a father who loved me and actually cared about me and was intimately involved in every detail of my life. And I had this expectation that if I asked, he would answer because I just asked and he just answered. And so I just prayed, God, should I move to South Carolina? Yes. Settled. Gave my two weeks notice. I did. This settled in my heart. I gave my two weeks notice. There was one problem. I was on probation. I got out of jail. I was on probation. I, I, I'd done all my community service, paid my restitution, paid my court fees and all that stuff, but I still had six months left of probation to, to satisfy before I'd be fully released out of the system. So I called my probation officer and I said, sir, I would, I'd really like to move to South Carolina. I was just, you know, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Like the Lord had said, yes, obviously it's gonna work because he's not a man that he should lie and he keeps his promises. And so he said, well, we'll talk about it at your next visit, okay? So the next visit, I walk in, and I, I, I come in, and I'm all excited. I, I was so convinced that I had loaded everything I owned into the back of my pickup truck, which was like a couple of surfboards, skateboard, bag, garbage bag full of clothes. 
And that was my earthly belongings, you know? I had like 200 bucks in my pocket and I was thankful that gas was cheap because I was going straight from that meeting with him to South Carolina. I had already settled that in my heart. And so I walked in and I'm just kind of excited and I said, we sit down, he says, so you want to move to South Carolina? I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, there's a problem with that. What's that? He said, South Carolina's Department of Justice doesn't have reciprocity with Florida's Department of Justice. I knew what that meant. But what didn't make sense was what he was saying seemed to be contrary to what the Lord had said. I said, so what are you saying? I said, oh, I said, I'm sorry. I said, so what's that mean? He said, it means, Mr. Giese, that South Carolina doesn't want Florida's trash. It's a good thing that we live by the words that proceed from the Father's mouth, not by the words that proceed by men's, because if I lived by the word of a man, I probably would have felt like trash in that moment. But Jesus would never give his life for trash. He didn't give his life because you were horrible. He gave his life because you were redeemable. The cross reveals your true value. He came because he loved you, not so that he could. Come on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was because he loved you that Jesus came, not so that he could. You were never unloved, and the cross is the ultimate revelation of God's love. If you ever doubt his love for you, you only have to look at a torn and broken savior hanging on a cross, bleeding for you, and then being resurrected to newness of life. And don't ever let your circumstances dictate his love or his goodness. Otherwise, you'll be dragging the love of God into the courtroom of your circumstances and finding him guilty. Well, if you love me, then how come? Stop right there. That's a dangerous place to be because you're telling him my circumstances are the ultimate judge of your goodness and your love for me when there's a cross that forever screams, I love you. It's the love of God revealed. So I just... I didn't know what to do in that moment. <laughs> I, it was first time ever in my life that what came from the mouth of a man contradicted what had come from the heart of the Father to me. And I didn't know what to do, so I did nothing. You don't always have to do something. I just stared at him, and it got awkward. But what's going on is in my head, I'm having this conversation with the Lord saying, but God, this is what you said. Why would he say that? But what he sees is just this dude staring at him. And I don't know how long it was, but it was long enough where I was like, this is awkward. He looks at me and he says, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to let you go. I know. (laughs) I think I know why. I have a hunch because the heart of the king is in the hand of the father. He turns the heart of the king. Listen, there's nobody that can keep you from following him. There's nobody, nobody, nobody. You know the problem is, is that sometimes we're so aware of why we can't be who he said, that he's standing in front of us and we're busy giving him excuses when he's offering us life. Come on, you think about this. He goes to the pool of Bethesda He sees a man there, and he looks at the man. He says, do you want to be well? 
The man looks at him and says, I have no one to put me in the water, and every time the angel stirs the water, people get to the water before I can. What's he doing? The same thing you and I do if we're not careful. I'm telling you what people have done and what people haven't done, and they're the reason that I can't be what you're offering me. You be careful that your story of what people haven't done or have done to you isn't greater than the promise of the man Jesus standing in front of you asking you, do you want to be well? Because we've got these, listen, how do you think he so quickly that came out of his, he didn't even have time to say yes. Isn't it amazing? The man Jesus is in front of him saying, do you want to be well? And what comes out of his mouth is, I have no one to put me in the water. I've been here for 38 years and I have no one to put me in the water. And every time the angel stirs it, somebody gets to the water before me. You know why? Because the story of his life was a victim And all he could think about was what people hadn't done for him and what people had done to him. And freedom is staring him in the face and offering him a better way. You're not the product of what people didn't do or did do. You're the product of the one that you give your life to and you put your trust in. Make sure that you're more aware of his story than your story. You make sure that you don't have a reason why what he said in his word can't be true. You know, we, we, we get hung up on that stuff sometimes. Jesus never did. I, I, do, I do think sometimes we have so many problems because we have so many answers. What if we got simpler and we had one answer and he was a man named Jesus and it was the gospel? You think about this. Look, I, I'm, I'm, I, I won't step on too many toes, but if they hurt, just say ow. Jesus comes to a woman at a well and says, give me something to drink and she looks at him and she's thinking this is weird a Jewish guy talking to me a Samaritan woman this shouldn't happen hey sister where's your husband how many of you guys know that when Jesus is asking us a question, it's not because he genuinely wants an answer from us as much as he wants us to consider the answer? He wasn't looking for Adam when he said, Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding behind a tree that he spoke and it came forth. I'm pretty sure he's well aware of where Adam is. He's pointing something out to Adam. Adam, look where you are. You're hiding behind something I created. And you've got fig leaves. Here's the thing about fig leaves. If we make it with our own hands, it'll never give us the confidence to stand before a holy God. Anything you've fashioned to cover yourself will never be good enough to boldly come into his throne room. That's why he made a skin and he covered them. That's why he spent the blood of his son Jesus so that you could be clothed in the righteousness of God and you could boldly approach the throne in your time of need so that you would run to him, not from him. Why? Because he understood if it's something you made with your own hands, it'll, you'll only be doing as good as your trust in you. But if I let you let me cover you with something I did with my hands, well, you'll have confidence to boldly come before me. Yeah. And so just, just save the clapping till the end because it's going to be really good from here out and you're going to want to clap the whole time. I'm just kidding. I'm having a lot of fun being here. I'm telling you, like, it feels like family. It feels so free, so comfortable. And there's hunger in the room. And when there's hunger, like, that's all you want as a, as a preacher. You just want hungry people. Man, I'll go find birds with their mouths open if they'll take what I have to give. And so he says to him, where's your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. 
And he says, woman, you spoke correctly. You've had four husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. Now, how many of you know that that right there is a counselor's dream? Because he can tell her all about how she's been looking for love and hasn't found it and go back and find out the wound that's causing her to look and you didn't get this and you didn't get that and so you've gone from man to man and, and all, listen, it's a counselor's dream. You, you could sign her up for 15 sessions right there and you could have her keep coming back and rediscovering who else hurt her and who else put her in that position and the truth of the matter is she could probably tell you 15 counseling sessions worth of hurt and reasons why she can't find love and she keeps looking for it but Jesus looks at her and says you've been dropping your bucket in the wrong well and I'm not going to go back and fix all the wells that were broken I'm going to offer you the one well that never runs dry and if you'll drop your bucket into my well you'll be never thirsty again We're busy ministering to broken wells rather than presenting people with the one who never runs dry. Be careful you don't get caught up in that stuff. And it's with good, well-intentioned. People have well-intentioned hearts, but I'm telling you, if our answer is anything that we can't find in the mouth of Jesus, it ought to sound weird coming from us. And he didn't give any of that stuff. I'm not saying there's not a place for counseling, but you make sure that our counsel is pointing them to the same truth that Jesus pointed them to. We have so many problems sometimes because we present people with so many answers. Jesus was convinced there was one answer to the problem. You're looking for me. You've dropped that little bucket of yours into five different wells that weren't capable of satisfying what you're looking for. Why don't you drop your bucket right here? You'll pull up an ever-living, ever-flowing spell that will come flowing out of you, rivers of living water. It's a reproduction. I'll, what is he telling her? If you'll let me in, I'll reproduce myself inside of you, and what you drink will come pouring from you. Why? Because he wants to reproduce himself inside of you. So does the enemy. That's why he wanted them to eat the fruit. You know, that it wasn't about the fruit. It was about the seed that was in the fruit that would reproduce itself after its own kind because every seed reproduces after its own kind. And he knew if he could get them to eat that fruit, that seed of sin would begin to reproduce itself inside of them. And he was right. Why? He tells them this. He says, listen, you're way better than what you know. And if you would just do this that God told you not to, you know what's comforting about that whole thing? You can't mess up your life without purposely, willfully disobeying something that God told you. Think about it. There's one tree in the garden that will ruin everything. So what does he tell him? Don't eat of it. Why? He never wants us to be out there trying to feel our way through life going, I don't want to miss it. He'll make sure and tell you, hey, don't do this. You can willfully choose and you can suffer consequences, but he won't leave you out there guessing. If there's something that will ruin things, he'll tell you, don't do that. And it's not because he wants to keep something from you. It's because of what he has for you. Why? Because his heart is for you. He loves you more than you can understand. So he wants them to eat that seed so that it will reproduce. That's why Jesus, this is so amazing. He comes and undoes everything that was done in the garden. Everything. Think about it. Why did they pay Judas to tell them who Jesus was? I never understood this. I would read that, that story and I would wonder, why did they pay Judas to show them who Jesus was? They knew who Jesus was. They had just shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest three days before when he rode in on a donkey. They had tried to push him off cliffs. They had tried to stone him. They met together to figure out how they could kill him. They knew who Jesus was. Why'd they hire Judas? I think it was God showing off his wisdom for the ages and undoing everything that was done in the garden by redoing it all in the garden. So think about this. 
In the Garden of Eden, man betrays God by putting his lips on fruit. And that seed goes inside of him and reproduces itself. He undoes that in the garden when once again, man betrays God by putting his lips on Jesus, the first fruit, who said you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that seed, when we do, gets inside of us and once again reproduces after its own kind. It's, I'm telling you, you read the Bible and you understand there's so much wisdom and revelation that's hidden in there and it's not hidden from you, it's hidden for you. He used to bug me, I'm like, why did they do that? And God showed me, he said, I was undoing everything that was done, everything was being made new. Why do you think when Mary sees Jesus, she thinks he's a gardener? Because he's the second Adam. Who was the first Adam? He's a gardener. God put him in a garden, told him to work. That makes him a gardener. <laughs> you realize work came before the fall. Don't ever curse the fact that you work. There was work before the fall. It's not the result of the fall. That's a gift. So, <laughs> so far out there. So, <laughs> I try to leave myself a little breadcrumb trail though so I can find my way back. And uh, so anyway, so I, I, I'm looking at this man and I'm, I'm thinking like, I, I don't know what to do because what's being presented to me as truth is completely opposite of what God has spoke as truth. And it was the first time in my life that I faced that and all I knew to do was not do anything because if I did something other than what he told me to do, I would be wrong. And I can't do that, so I can't do anything but stare and he says, I'm gonna let you go. And I realized, if I know what God said, it'll give me a confidence when I stand before men. And I'll be able to withstand anything that presents itself as truth that doesn't line up with the one who is truth. And that would become a valuable lesson learned to me. You remember when that happened in the Bible one time, it was when God sent Samuel to anoint the king. I love this story, it's so amazing to us, and man, that we would get this inside of us and give our lives to this. He tells Samuel, he says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and I want you to anoint one of his sons to be king. So Samuel comes to the house of Jesse and he says, gather all your sons. I'm going to anoint one of them king. The first one comes by, he's tall, he's handsome, he's a warrior, Samuel looks and says, surely this is God's anointed. He says, I haven't chose him. The next one comes, surely he is, this is Samuel, you're looking at the outside, I'm looking at the heart. And one by one, all the sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, all of them. Because he told Jesse, gather all your sons. He has every reason to believe all the sons of Jesse are present. And one by one they walk by and the last one walks by and God says, I haven't chosen him either. And look at Samuel's response. He doesn't question himself, maybe I missed it. He doesn't question God, maybe you missed it. He looks at Jesse and says, you must have another son. Why? Because I know what he said and I know that I've been obedient. So I'll question everything but him you must have another son. And there was, a, there was a time that that would serve us well because we've lived by that, Patty and I both have. We were having a leadership meeting and I was preaching a message just like this one. And I was talking about being anchored in his word and I was talking about the fact that, there, that the storm is coming to both the wise man who's living according to the word of God and the foolish man who's not. You know, a storm in your life is not evidence that you haven't lived according to God's purpose. The storm came to both the houses. 
the storm came to both the men. Here's the truth. How do you know if you're Jonah and you caused the storm or you're Jesus and you're carrying the answer to the storm? Are you being obedient to what he's called you to? Because sometimes people say, well, if there's a storm, then you know it's God because the devil's trying to stop it. Well, maybe not because if you're walking in opposition to God, that storm might be coming from him. Jonah. The answer to Jonah was to get rid of him. You don't want to be the guy in the boat that the answer to the, to the storm is for you to get thrown overboard. You want to be the guy in the boat that the answer to the storm is for you to get woke up and brought and shown to look what's going on. That's Jesus. You notice the storm came to the disciples doing exactly what he called them to do. He said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Then the storm came. If we're living according to circumstances in that moment, we might say, well, this must be God because there's a storm. Or we might say, well, there's a storm. We must have done something wrong. How about this? How about just walk in obedience and trust that if the storm comes, you're prepared for it. Why? Because your foundation is strong. Here's the crazy thing about both of them is that until the storm came, both houses looked the same to everybody watching. The storm didn't change the foundation, it revealed it. You know what the amazing thing about being a house that's built on a solid foundation is? You can also be a place of refuge for those who aren't when their house comes crashing down in the middle of a storm. We need more people who live according to his word and would be rock solid so that when everything is crashing around us and there's a storm raging, our house is a beacon of safety and a beacon of hope and solidity that people can look at and say they have something and they would come run to us. Then it's easy to give away the gospel. Why? Because people have seen something that you have that they want. So I got done preaching that message and we had a leadership meeting and our little girl was, was 15 at the time. In South Carolina, you can drive at 15 years old during the day, and she had drove a lot with me. She'd taken driver's ed, and her driver's ed teacher, retired state trooper, said she was an amazing driver, really good, she's ready, all that stuff, and we'd let her drive the day before, just a small little short drive, and she started begging, and she, she's one of the most persistent people on the face of the earth. <laughs> and you don't wanna break your kids of that, because when that gets applied in the right way, it's an amazing characteristic. And she said, Mom, can I drive to church tomorrow? Like, I don't want to be at church from 7.30 to 3.30. And Patty said, no, I don't, I don't think you should drive. You can just drive with us. And she came downstairs, Dad, Mom won't let me drive. <laughs> and I said, well, did you ask her why? And she said, she, she just said she wants me to ride with you guys. And I said, well, we'll talk about it. So Patty and I talked about it. And we're like, you know, at some point we're going to have to let her go. And, and this might be a good time. She can just drive to church and drive home. And so we decided that we would let her drive. She had a little Honda Accord that she loved. And so we had our leadership meeting. And right when the leadership meeting is ended, right coming off of a message like this about being anchored in his word, Patty gets a phone call. And it's her boyfriend's, Leah's boyfriend's mom. And he says, Aaliyah, she, she says, Aaliyah and Chaz, Leah's boyfriend, and Brooke, Leah's cousin, have been in a bad accident. And Patty said, how, is, how are they? And she said, Chaz is fine, Brooke's fine, she's sitting in a fire truck, Aaliyah's in an ambulance on her way to the hospital. And Patty hung up the phone and said, we have to go, Aaliyah's been in an accident. And so we get in the car, we're heading to the hospital, I call a friend of mine, as part of the Greenville County Sheriff's Department, and I said, hey, Aaliyah got into an accident, I guess they're taking her by ambulance to Greenville Memorial, and he said, 
hmm, that's weird. Where was she at? And I told him, he said, you'd think they would take, they would take her to Greer. It's closer. And he said, she must have lost consciousness. If they lose consciousness, then they'll take them in for observation, make sure there's not, you know, any kind of concussion and stuff like that. He said, she's probably just airbag stunned. And so we hang up and I tell Patty, she's probably going to be, she's fine. She's probably just airbag stunned. Chad said, they're probably just taking her for observation. We'll go there. We'll hang out with her and we'll get her and bring her home. And Patty says, she just has this intensity about her and she's just praying in the spirit, you know, and she's over there rebuking death and stuff. And I'm like, she's going to be fine. And, um, and so my, um, my friend called back. He said, hey, where are you at? And I said, I'm driving to the hospital. And he said, okay, yeah, I checked. And they said that she, she was kind of going in and out of consciousness um, and that they were taking her in. He said, looks like she's, she's got a bump on her head, so they're taking her in for observation. Well, we get to the hospital, and they t- we go there, and we ask, is Aliyah Gisi here? And they said, we don't, we don't have anybody under that name, and realized we beat the ambulance there. And a little a couple minutes later, a guy came up to me and he said, uh, he said, are you the parents of Aaliyah? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, we do have her coming in. They just called and let us know she's coming in. I don't know anything about her condition other than that she's um, uh, unconscious. And he said, um, but it can't be too bad or they would have fired up the trauma bay. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I went and told Patty that. And I said, it's not that bad or they would have fired up the, the trauma bay. And uh, so they came and got us and brought us into a family waiting room. And we're in the family waiting room. And more and more of our family are showing up because they've heard Leah was in an accident. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, I walk out of the room to go to the bathroom. And when I come back, I see a man standing outside the room with his head down and his hands behind his back. And I see that he's got a badge on that says chaplain. And I know it's not good. And I walk through the door, and there's a state trooper standing there with his head down, holding his hat in front of him. And there's two doctors sitting on a chair. And they said, is this dad? When I walked in, and I said, yeah, I'm dad. And suddenly my head feels like it's detached from my body, and I'm watching this almost as if it's happening to somebody else. And I sat down, and he said, my name is Dr. Troop. I'm a neurosurgeon. This is Dr. Webb. He's a trauma bay doctor. And we're here to tell you what's going on with your little girl. I said, okay. He said, the good news is from here down, she's perfect. But from here up, it's a mess. She suffered a severe blunt force trauma to her forehead. Uh, It's impacted her brain. And we are going to have to do life-saving surgery right now. He said, I'm not even having you sign any forms because there's not a consent. We're doing this. And he gave us a little bit of information. And then he said, I'm, I gather he must have heard us praying. He said, I, I guess you guys are Christians. I, I believe in God too, and I don't believe in coincidence. And he said, I just want to let you know this. He said, I was supposed to be operating on another young lady right now, and my whole team is here, and the operating room is prepped, and the anesthesiologist is there, and we're getting ready to put her under, and the laboratory calls and says, we can't put her under because they forgot to give her a pregnancy test. He said, while I was on the phone reaming out the lab for wasting all of our time and money, that my cell phone rang and it was Dr. Webb and he said, I got a little girl here in the trauma bay that needs surgery quickly. How soon can you get here? He said, what normally would take an hour and a half took us about 12 minutes. We're ready to go. We're going in right now. And he said, I do have, he said, this I can deal with. He said, the major concern we have is we can see on the MRI that the main lateral vein that runs through the center of the brain has torn loose and something is keeping it from releasing because if that was to release, it would be instantly catastrophic. I have to get in there and stabilize that and then I'll work on the rest. Okay, we prayed with him, prayed over him, went out into the room. 
and we had complete peace to the point that another pastor who was there looked over at Patty and asked a friend of ours, is she like way in denial? Because he couldn't fathom someone who was waiting while his little girl, her little girl was back there having the peace that Patty was carrying and that I was carrying. They thought for sure it had to be denial. The truth of the matter is, is we don't like that word in Christianity, but every one of us lives in denial of something. We just chose to deny the report and to believe the word of God. And not that the report wasn't real, but that there was a greater truth and that we had a promise that was greater than the medical truth. A few hours later, he comes out and his surgery went well. He said, everything went as good as could be hoped for. He said, and what was crazy was when I got in and opened up her head to stabilize that main vein, it was as if something had pinched it shut already and it had sealed itself off. So I just put a stitch in there and then went to work on the front and that's why the surgery took half the time that I told you it would. I think I know what the something was. But here's the thing, is that we would then spend 51 days in the hospital, 51 nights. I slept at the hospital while Patty was home at night with our son Jackson and warring for her in the spirit, praying. She'd stomp and march around our house praying in the spirit, and I'd be at the hospital talking to the doctors, and then she'd come up and spend the day and the night with me, and then she'd go home. And You know, the truth is, is that we handled it differently. I stayed there and wanted to know everything. She didn't stay there, and she didn't want to know everything. She knew what she needed to know, and she was warring against that in the spirit, and I was there the whole time talking to doctors to the point they thought I was in the medical profession by the time <laughs> I was left. But this is what happened over and over again there. We would be faced with what was being said, contradicting what we had heard. So the first thing was is that they, they, she was gonna be an organ donor. Well, the first thing actually was that she would be a fatality and wouldn't make it to the hospital alive. She didn't even get a ticket, ticket written on her record because the paramedics at the scene told the state trooper, there's no chance that little girl lives. I wouldn't even waste your time. Then it was, she'll be an organ donor. Then it was, well, if she survives, she'll have no function and she will just be basically a vegetable. Then it was, if she's not a vegetable, she'll have limited movement, and she will be not the person that you knew. She'll be angry, and she'll be very hard to deal with, and you guys need to ask yourselves if you're prepared to even be able to deal with that, because she'll probably be wildly aggressive and nothing like the girl that you knew. This is what we were told, and we would just look at them and smile and say, we just believe that God's going to restore her. We weren't living in denial, like we understood the gravity of the situation, but there was a greater truth that we had latched our hearts onto and that we had found, anchored ourselves to, and we couldn't be moved. And, and, and so they came to us so many times and said that, that they actually tried to set up a meeting with the hospital psychologist so that he could shock us into reality because we were so deep in denial. We had friends who worked in the PICU that, that they came to them. They said, you need to sit your friends down and you need to tell them what's going on with their little girl because they are so far in denial. There's no way they can live like that with what's going on with their little girl unless they are completely in denial. And our friends looked at them and said, you know the things that we talk about, about this God that we believe? What you're seeing is people that actually believe what they say they believe. That's what they told them. 
But here's the thing. This is the most amazing thing about it, is that because we were anchored in the word of God and because we actually believed him and took him at his word, we were able to take our eyes off our own situation, look around and see others who needed. We were able to, in the middle of that storm, be the house that was standing that became shelter for other people who were going through a storm of their own. And every time a new family would show up at the ICU, we would bring them in and talk to them, share the gospel with them. We'd pray for them. We would sit with them and weep with them and cry with them and love them. And here's what happened. One time the neurosurgeon came out to give me some bad news about our daughter and he walked into the waiting room which was basically full of us all the time and he asked he said what, do you, anyone know where Roy is and they said I think he's out in the hallway he opens the door to the hallway and he sees me and I'm praying over a man whose daughter's in better shape than mine and he said it convicted his heart that he doesn't believe God the way that I do because here I am going through a thing that he could never imagine going through and I'm actually praying for somebody else you know the truth is that should not be rare that should be the normal Christian life a normal Christian life. One day I'll close up with this, a couple of fun stories about it. Because listen, don't let any of this be a condemnation of where you're not. Let it be a conviction of what's possible when we surrender our lives to him and anchor our lives in his truth. Don't ever feel con condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. There's no condemnation. Not if you're walking after the spirit of God. This one day, uh, um, a lady came in and she had a little son and um, he had gone through pre-op, his head was shaved and stuff. And so we started talking, he had a hospital, hospital gown on and we said, what's, what's going on with him? And she said, oh, he's, he's, he's actually here to have surgery tomorrow. He had pre-op today. And we said, what's, what's up? She said, he's got this big tumor um, on his vocal cords. It's really in a, in a kind of a scary place. They're afraid about him losing his vocal cords, but they have to remove it. And, uh, and we said, can we, can we just pray for him? And she said, sure. So we just prayed, we cursed the tumor, we thank God for healing, we thank God for life. The next day, we're sitting in there and she comes walking in and she walks by us and goes to the vending machine and I said, hey, how's Isaiah? She stops, turns around, oh my gosh! She's, I'm serious. She was, she was just this thin little lady with a big afro and she looked over, she said, oh my gosh, I forgot to tell you! <laughs> she said, he's healed! I'm like, what do you mean? She said, they went in to do surgery. This is what she said. She said, they went in to do surgery this morning and they couldn't find the tumor. And when they did a deep scan for it, it had shrunk so tiny that they were gonna give him a treatment. The next day it was completely gone and he was checked out of the hospital the following day and gone home. We can't boast in that because if our feet aren't anchored in his word, there's no way that our eyes are open to look around and see other people because all we can see is our own house that's collapsed but instead we've anchored our life in the word of God. And what he says trumps anything else. And when what someone says to us doesn't line up with what God has spoken, it's a real easy decision. You must have another son. I'll question you, I'll question that, I'll question everything but him. And if I know I'm walking in obedience, I won't question my own heart because my own heart doesn't condemn me because I stand before him in obedience. Oh, that's kind of important, right? So this girl who was going to die on her way to the hospital, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm out of it, all right? I get, I start flowing and going for things and I forget where I'm even at, never mind the story I was telling most of the time. 
So, so this girl who was gonna be an organ donor, who wasn't gonna make it to the hospital, who was gonna be a vegetable, who was gonna be angry and irritable and hard to live with and aggressive and violent, and then if she could walk, it was gonna be four to six months of rehab here in Atlanta at the Shepherd Center. We were ready to move here. I said, if that's what it takes, we'll move here. That's fine with us. This little girl who was supposed to never be able to go to school again went to, instead of four to six months of inpatient intensive rehab at the Shepherd Center to be able to walk, went to 10 days of inpatient rehab in Greenville and was doing jumping jacks and jogging and finished 11th grade. This last, went and finished 10th grade that year, passed 11th grade this year, and is gonna graduate with her class next, this coming school year as a senior and is looking at where she wants to go to college. And listen to me. She's sweeter now. And she was sweet before. And I told the doctor, listen, I will, I'll close with this, I promise. The worship team's like, yeah, right, we don't believe you. It's your guy's fault usually. You start playing and it starts flowing again. But, but the doctor told me, he said, she'll be aggressive angry, have wild mood swings, and possibly be very violent. And I looked at him and I said, with all due respect, sir, her personality that she has doesn't come from the chemical makeup of her brain. Her personality comes because of the spirit of God that lives inside of her. And I promise you, she's gonna be better on the other side than she was on this side because it's gonna make her more like him. That's what I told him. Guess what? He honors his word. And when you put your word in his word in your mouth, he honors your word. So let's just agree. Why don't we just like, like they could agree that whatever it says in there, whatever he says, that's what we're going to live by. The words that proceed from the mouth of the father, not from natural things that we're going to actually anchor ourselves in what's unseen and live by faith and trust that when a storm comes, cause there's a storm coming, there's storms coming, but guess what? You don't have to fear the storm. You'll become a place of refuge in the storm because your house will be standing while everybody else's collapses. But you make sure that you're settled and anchored on the word of God. And then the storms can come. They might not be fun, but they won't destroy you. And they'll actually make you stand out to a world whose life is in shambles because you're facing the same thing they did and yet you're standing tall and proud still because he's the lifter of your head. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this life that we get to live in you, Father. I thank you for the promises that we have. God, I pray that we would anchor ourselves in those promises now. God, that we would learn to sail in the quiet cove before the storms come. And then, God, I pray that what is learned in the quiet cove will be proven in the turbulent waters. That we wouldn't be trying to find ourselves trying to learn to sail in the middle of the storm, God. That we would simply sail with what we learned in the quiet times of life when the storm comes, God. I thank you for a hunger in our heart for your word and for more of you, Father. I thank you, God, that, that, that you gave your son, that he became sin, that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that it wasn't an act. He didn't come to earth and act sinful so that we could act righteous. He became something so that we could become something. So Father, would you just open our eyes to that truth and let us anchor ourselves in you and live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen.